this brand new series, and we're walking through First uh, Thessalonians, and, and it's got a bunch of, like, like this is Paul's, one of Paul's writings, and it has a bunch of, uh, he has a bunch of theology and topics in it, and a lot of it will relate. We just walked through our Heaven and Hell series, and we spent two weeks on Heaven and then two weeks on Hell. Um, that's going to show up again here in Thessalonians and, and uh, in a bunch of other things. And it, and it starts off, though, we're going to go through some background just so we're all on the same page and we kind of understand uh, the, the cultural kind of history and setting of this document and, and the church that, uh, that he's writing to. But I want to start by asking this question that he's going to talk about in the first chapter, and that is this. It's an easy question with maybe not an easy answer. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, I say it's an easy question or maybe on the surface kind of an easy answer, but, but I also bet if we were to poll everyone and we were to get everyone's answer to that, we would have different answers. What does it mean to be a Christian? As, as easy as that might be to say like, oh, I, I have an idea, but how do you know that's the right idea? What does it mean to be a Christian and how do you know you are one? If someone, uh, you know, a non, an unchurched person comes up to you and says, all right, how do you, how do you know you are a Christian. What is a Christian like, and how do you know you are one? How do you become one? What do you say? And there's all kinds of, of answers you could give, and, and we probably, all of us, would give a, a myriad of maybe different answers, maybe in the close kind of realm of each other, but, but how do we know? Like, how do I, how do you personally know you are actually a Christian? As much as you say I'm a Christian, as much as anyone can say, oh, I'm a Christian, how do you know you actually are? And you're not just, you're not just taking the title without actually being one. Paul's going to address this today in this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this. And I, I think, I hope, by the end of this morning, um, we'll have, you'll have not just a better answer, because the goal is not to just say like, well, now I have an answer. But the goal really is to say, I have a better understanding. And that understanding should bring about an actual change in my life. So either you say, all right, now I'm, I'm, even, more, I'm even more confirmed in my faith and in, in, in my following of Jesus. All right, I, I have more encur- I'm more encouraged now than when I started. Or, or you end today saying, I don't know if I am a Christian. I have better insight now as to what it means and what my next step might be. Either option is a win. So we're going to look at this. We're going to start with some background about the church in Thessalonica and, and particularly the city of Thessalonica. So, so Paul writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica, hence it's called Thessalonians. And it's called First Thessalonians because it's the first letter. There's also a second one. Um, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, which was a Roman province in, uh, in northern Greece. It's still a city today. So if you go to Greece, um, it's, uh, you can go visit Thessalonica. It's a, it's a pretty large city, 400, 500,000 people um, today. In, uh, in Paul's time, it was about 100,000, which, which is still a lot. I mean, back 2,000 years ago, that is a very large, substantial city, 100,000. It's, you know, it's the size of Bend but 2,000 years ago. Um, and and uh, so it was, uh, it was a, a, uh, a very uh, important city. It was an influential city. It was, uh, it was a commercial center. 
in the Greco-Roman world, it was right, it's right on the coast of the Mediterranean, so it was a trade center. So any time you have a city that's on the coast uh, that is on water, of course, it becomes a trade hub. And, and so with that comes not just a bunch of different goods from places, but also ideas and philosophy and theology and, and, uh, and, and different religions and religious worship and different gods. And so this was, this was not a, a city with one kind of, this is who we are, this is our identity. This was, in all, like in all sense of the world, a, a, a melting pot full of different kinds of people who believe different kinds of things. And that's what Paul is jumping into. So there are, uh, there are a number of Jews there. And so there's a Jewish synagogue, but there's also all kinds of other ideas and philosophies and religions represented. Uh, Paul writes this letter um, to the church in Thessalonica. He writes 1 Thessalonians while he's in Corinth. So Corinth is another city. It's a little bit a ways away. And, and, and so the timeline, if you're following, um, he does this during his second missionary journey. Paul takes three missionary journeys and then a fourth journey in which he goes to Rome and that ends up being where he's killed. So it's not so much a missionary journey as it is kind of his final journey. So he writes this during his second missionary journey. um, He's told to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel, so he shows up here in Thessalonica. He's there. We're going to read about it, what happens to him in just a minute here. And then he goes from there to Berea um, and then uh, to Athens and then to Corinth. And he stays in Corinth for about 18 months, a year and a half. And while he's in Corinth, he's writing this letter back to the church in Thessalonica. So he had been there, he's traveled a little bit, and now he's, uh, he's, uh, he's um, uh, sent people to get word, to, to look on, uh, like, like find out about them. He sent Timothy, who then came back and gave a report. We'll read about this as we go through 1 Thessalonians. So he, he now gets to a point where he says, all right, I've, uh, he helped start this church, and then he leaves, and then he sends someone back to see how they're doing, and then he gets that report, and then he's like, all right, I'm gonna write them now. I'm gonna write specifically this letter to them. It is, uh, it's one of the earliest books of the New Testament. It's one of Paul's earliest writings, maybe his earliest. Maybe Galatians predates this, barely, but it would be maybe by a year. He writes this in probably 50 or to 51 AD, so um, it's fairly early in the timeline sort of of the documents. And, and it's, it's one of the, um, it's, uh, it's certainly one of his earliest writings, but it also predates even some of the Gospels. So this, this document might be, for this church certainly, the only one that they had that's like this. This is early in their faith. So he's gonna address a whole bunch of different things. And it's one of his first letters he writes, so it's, it's fairly short. By the time he gets to like the church in Corinth who's got all kinds of issues, I mean, he's writing like, like pages and pages and pages and chapters and chapters. The church in Rome, he's like, man, that's like 16 chapters. This one's five. It's just a quick kind of get in, get out. Here it is, just a quick letter. And then he realizes as he does more of this, as he plants more churches, writes more letters, oh, these churches need more help. They got more issues than I realized. And, and even with this church, he realizes uh, they need more help, so I'm gonna write a, a second letter to them. So it's, it's very early in Paul's kind of writings. It's very early in the development of the church. And, and we see that Paul probably stayed here for uh, at least three months. What we're gonna see is that he stays, uh, we read in Acts that he was there for at least three weeks that we know of, guaranteed, that they talk about. But he probably stayed longer. And there's a few reasons we know this, or at least commentators will agree and, and think that he stayed longer. Um, first, he says that he worked there. He got a job. So this wasn't a quick visit that he actually lived here and, and uh, he'll eventually we'll see him say that he worked day and night to toil among you so that, so that he wasn't a burden. 
He's like, I'm going to pay my way. I'm going to get a job and live here, and you don't have to pay for me. We also saw that he took up an offering for the church, not for himself, but for the church, twice from the church in Philippi. So there had to be enough time for two different offerings to travel. So commentators say at least three months. And, and so he, he was there, but it, it's not a ton of, it's not like a, 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 an extended amount of time, but long enough where he can establish a base and then move on. So here's what we read, okay? Acts 17, we read specifically about Paul's interaction with this church when he visits the city and then, uh, and then how he leaves abruptly. So here's what it says. In Acts 17, verse one, when Paul and his companions had passed through um, Amphipolis and Apollo, uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. So whenever it says there was a Jewish synagogue, that means there was obviously a Jewish population. Not every city had one, but there's a large enough Jewish population that they had a synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Sabbath days are Saturdays. So for three Saturdays, three weeks, he went each Sabbath to the synagogue to preach, to reason with them about, what he, about his message. And here's what he says. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So he goes and says, all right, I'm gonna preach Jesus each of these Sabbaths in the synagogue because he's going to the Jews for you. He was like, I would go to the Jews first and the Gentiles because, all right, I'm gonna preach about their Messiah to them and, and see how they respond. And then I'm gonna talk to Gentiles. And so he goes and he, he does this. As is custom, this is what he does in this city. All right, now let's see what happens. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So some Jews, some God-fearing Greeks are Gentiles, non-Jews, but they also wanted to serve the Lord. So we have Jews who convert to the, become followers of Jesus. We have Gentiles, God-fearing Greeks, who decide to follow Jesus, and some prominent women in this city who then decide to follow Jesus. All right, so Paul and Silas are being pretty effective. Verse five, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up, this is great, the language, some bad characters. <laughs> they got some bad dudes, right? All right, we're gonna round up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So they know where they're staying. They're staying in Jason's house, whoever Jason is. All right, that's where Paul and Silas are. So Jason is probably, presumably, one of the maybe earlier con uh, converts, probably had a larger home that could house them. And so they're staying there. But when the officials did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason wel has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So they say that these people who are, literally have the whole world upside down, that they're, they're causing trouble all over Paul and Silas, these two, you know, these two little guys, and now they've come here, and Jason, phew, he's housing them. Can you believe this? And here's what they're claiming. They're breaking your laws here, Rome. They're saying there's another king, not Caesar, another king. And this, this other king, his name, they say, is Jesus. Verse 8, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they just like... It, their response is funny. They get so upset. They made 
they made, uh, they made Jason and the others post-bond and then let them go. <laughs> like, we are so upset with you, just give us some money and we'll let you go. <laughs> like, so that's what they do. All right. Maybe afraid of the, what would happen with the city. All right. So we'll post-bond, give us some money, and then they let them go. And then we see this, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So Paul and, and Silas now leave. Now, this is probably a few months have gone by. So there's some time in between the first three weeks where he's preaching and then people become followers of Jesus. This is probably a few months. And then it ends really abruptly and they just have to leave. That's the setting we find ourselves in, all right? So Paul starts this church. It's, it's now Jews and Gentiles to come in together to, to build a new church. He's with them for a, just a few months. How much can you do in a few months? And then without even, having, without even being able to say goodbye, he and, he and Silas just have to leave. For fear of their life, they take off and they move on. On to the next city, on to the next city, on to the next city. Now, Paul is going to get word. He sends Timothy, and he's going to get word. He sends him to check up on the church in Thessalonica, and he gets word about what they're doing, and then he writes this letter. That's where we now jump in. So what does it mean to be a Christian? We're going to see Paul discuss and answer these questions. And, and, and maybe um, for a number of us, maybe... Maybe you're here and you would consider yourself um, irreligious or, um, or certainly a non-Christian, but, but just sort of like, um, yeah, it's not really, for a variety of reasons, I'm just not interested in becoming a Christian or I'm not interested in hearing about it or knowing. And maybe you're here and you find yourself here just like, I don't really know. I don't, I don't know enough to know or I don't, I, I don't know. Or maybe, or maybe you know people who would fit this description, who would say like, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, I don't really want to become a Christian. And I also don't, I don't want to hear more about it. I was having a coffee with a guy just a few weeks ago, and this, was, this is what we, we talked about. And he's not a Christian, and uh, far from it. And he said, I'm just, I don't really want to waste any kind of brain power and thought towards this, towards Christianity. Oh, okay. This is not more worth my time. And, and I hear that, and I, I love that. I love that conversation. Because that, for me, you might hear a closed door. I hear, ooh, he's ready. <laughs> you're, you're ready, all right. Well, tell me why. Why don't you think it's worth it? And, and, and we went back and forth and, and had a great conversation. Um, and I'll tell you about how it went in a second. But, but all of, like him and anyone who's like this, we're just saying, I don't really have interest in becoming a Christian or even just hearing about it, they can only do this on the basis of a, of, a, of a presumption that they know what Christianity is. You can only deny or decline Christianity if you have an idea of what you think it is. You have something in your mind of this is what it is and, and it's been informed by something, by, by experience, by TV, by what you see on news channels, by whatever it may be, by people you know, by things in your past. And, and you, the, so anyone who is indifferent to Christianity can only be indifferent if, if they think they know what it means, what it is. Oftentimes what I'll hear from people who are not like in church now or not religious or not, certainly not Christians, they'll say, oh, I, I used to go to church 
Or I used, I've had, I know a lot of people who say, I used to be a Christian. And something happened. It didn't work for me. I didn't enjoy it. It was forced on me. I went through, a, had a bad experience, had a run-in with someone. Um, there was something that was either traumatic or offensive, and, and I just realized I don't want to do this. Whatever it is, something happened in the past, and that has informed their idea of what a Christian is. And my response to that, and even in this conversation I had with this uh, particular person, uh, they had a, a history in with uh, Christianity when they were younger, and, and my response is this. Hey, I get that. And, and if that was, if your understanding of Christianity was my understanding of Christianity, I don't want it. I'd be out. What, what you think Christianity is, I reject. I don't want, I don't want nothing to do with this. I remember he was, you know, kind of shocked. Like, you don't, I said, I wouldn't be a Christian. I don't want to be a Christian if that's what a Christian is. And he has no framework to understand, well, what else could it be? This is, this is what it is. But you are one, but you say you don't want to be one. All right, all right. He's intrigued, right? So are you. <laughs> and I said, what if Christianity is not this, what you think it is, but what if it's something entirely different? And what if the thing that it is is something much more, much more, not even just appealing, but it resonates with you as much more true and, and deep down in your soul where, where this, it really is different than this thing. And, and how do you know that the people that did this or your understanding, how do you know that they're Christians? That they accurately represented what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When you went through that traumatic experience, when that thing happened to you, when you saw these people and these religious leaders and they're hypocritical and they're judgmental, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want that. But my understanding and experience of Christianity is something totally different. What if, what if what you think Christianity is, is actually not Christianity? Would you want to know what the alternative is? And like you were sitting here thinking the same thing, he said, yeah, I'd want to know. Great. Let's talk. Because Christian, like, how do you know what a Christian is? And is it just simply because like, you have a presupposition of what you think it is or based on your experience that, that you can't be indifferent to something that is appealing and you can't, like, the only reason you can be indifferent is because you don't want it. I don't want this thing. All right. So what does it mean to be a Christian? And how do you know you are one? Paul is going to answer and address this very thing and talk about real Christianity, not, not what you hear on TV or on the news. It's not a voting block or a political party or, or, or experience. Or, or it's, it's, not like, uh, it's not people who are extremely judgmental and hypocritical and, and who are holier than thou. Like that's our people's understanding of Christianity. Is it's, just, it's just used as a power and influence. And I'm looking at this saying, this is not biblical Christianity. This might be... This might be American Christianity. It's not real Christianity. It's not what I signed on for. It's not biblical Christianity that follows Jesus and who he is and what he wanted. This is something entirely different, and I don't want that. I don't want this. So what is the this thing? How do I know I'm a Christian? Let's jump in. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Here, here it begins. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. This is their, their, he's, they're putting their names on this. They're all together. Paul's writing this, and he's like, I got Silas and Timothy here with me. To the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, a grace and peace to you. 
He begins as he almost always does with grace and peace, some sort of salutation, welcome, you know, and, um, to, to those who are loved by the Father or, uh, and who, are, uh, who, have, who have put their faith in Jesus. Grace and peace. Great. And then, and then he reveals his pastor's heart. So he really does care about them. Verse two, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. He's, he's saying, I am always praying for you. I'm mentioning you all the time, continually in my prayers. We remember before our God and Father, and he lists three things. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he gives this, this popular kind of triad that he, he brings up a lot. Faith, hope, and love. And he mentions specifically with them, hey, we remember your faith and your, your love and your hope. All in Jesus. All right. So now he jumps into the bulk of the letter, the, uh, of the, the first chapter. So how do I know I'm a Christian? All right, here it is, step one. I mean, we're going to give three, three things that, that prove and that, that are evidence that you are a Christian. Number one, you know you're a Christian if you believe the gospel. Whatever the gospel is, you said, I believe in that. And, and not just I, I understand it to be true, I've put my trust in that. I had someone after this last service say, hold on, hold on. Don't you have to start with belief in Jesus? I said, well, well, sure, but that's not enough. There's plenty of people who believe in Jesus and talk about Jesus and like Jesus. The gospel is something different. The gospel is what Jesus did and why. The gospel is his life, death, burial, resurrection, and then the power that comes with that to forgive people. That's different than simply saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I I like Jesus. He, He seemed to have a lot of nice things to say. No, no, no. This is different. You believe not just in that Jesus existed, but you've put your faith and trust and belief in his mission, in his purpose, in in the reason he came to save you. And simply put, it's not just I, I believe Jesus, but no, 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 Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. All right? You know you're a Christian if you believe and trust in the gospel. If, if, the, if Christianity begins with anything else, if it begins with you trying to be a good person, where you say, here's what it means to be a Christian, just be a really good person. If, if your Christianity begins with, with, well, here's what it means to be a Christian, just try and help people, as many people as you can. I try and, I try and help more people than I hurt. I try to be a better person than I am a bad person. And as long as you're a good person, then God's gonna honor that. If that's Christianity for you, that's the wrong gospel. You're not a Christian. If Christianity is, well, I go to church and I make sure that I don't miss a Sunday and, um, and I make sure that, uh, that we, uh, I'll even pray X amount of times um, in a certain, you know, certain, certain words, a certain amount of times, and, and, and I'll go to church a certain amount of times, and, and I'll even tithe, and, and this is my church. I go to this church, and this is my church, so therefore I'm a Christian. If that's, if that's Christianity for you, you might not be a Christian. That's not the gospel. Jesus doesn't talk about, hey, you want to follow me? Just go to church. 40 out of the 52 weeks a year. If you get 40, you're in. 39, hey, work a little harder. That's not what it means to be a Christian. You know you're a Christian if you believe the gospel. Here's how he starts, verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And how do we know he's chosen you? Because our gospel came to you. He starts with the gospel. 
And he says, our gospel, later on he'll say my gospel. And he's not saying like my version of the gospel, but rather the gospel that I'm preaching, that God approved, that, that is the official gospel. And there's other people saying other things about Jesus, but no, 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 our gospel, the one that, that has been true from the beginning, to, like our gospel, it came to you. God, God designed this in such a way that he wanted us to come preach the gospel to you so we know God loves you and chooses you and wants you to be saved. All right, the gospel has come. It begins, Paul begins with the gospel, the message and the purpose and the mission of Jesus. God chose not just the Jews, but also Gentiles, good Jews and and God-fearing Greeks, all of them. He says, all right, you're gonna start my church in Thessalonica. So it begins with you... You have to believe at the very beginning, you have to believe and trust in, put your faith in the gospel. Not even just Jesus. I mean, we, we say like believe in Jesus. Of course you believe in Jesus, but it's, the, it's, it's what specifically about Jesus that's important. It can't be, it's not enough that you just say, well, he, I know, I believe that Jesus was a good teacher. Or he existed. That's not good enough. I believe that Jesus is God himself who came down and lived the perfect life and then he took on sin and he died on the cross to pay for my penalty of my sin. And, and all of that was, it was, was put on him so that he died and then God raised him from the grave. And, and because of that, I can be forgiven and now be changed. And that is authority in my life. And now I follow that. That is the beginning of a Christian. That is what we're talking about. So you have to start with belief in the gospel. Number two. You know that you're a Christian if the gospel, that very gospel, is changing how you live. It isn't enough that you just say, I agree with all of those things you said and then live however you want. That the, that the gospel comes with power and, su- and power in such a way that it doesn't leave you how you used to be, that it changes you from the inside out, that it has authority and power and it isn't this. It isn't because, well, I just, I just believe sincerely that this is true. All right, what evidence do you have? I don't really have evidence. I just kind of put my faith in it, and, and, I, and I hope it to be true. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is something like external, outside of you that actually comes with authority and power over your life. It's not because you decided internally. Anyone can do that, and you can decide whatever you want and say that has authority for you, and, and what's true for you is true for you, but not for me. And, and everyone, everything's just relative at that point. It's just whatever you want to be true, you decided, and it's true. This is different. This is an objective authority from the outside of your life coming in and having influence over you, and you saying, all right, I'm giving in to this. This is, more, this is much more, there's much more power and authority here than me just the, like wishful thinking, hoping it to be true, that, that it comes with power. A Christian is someone with whom the gospel has become a power, the power to change the deepest part of you, the entire direction of your life. Here's what he says. You know that we lived among you for your sake. Oh, sorry, uh, verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. And then he continues, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The, 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 the gospel came and he's like, it isn't us just saying things and you say, yeah, I think that makes sense, that's true. But it came with power and the Holy Spirit comes and, and they have a deep conviction. Okay, these are, these are the words of God himself. This is, this is life. The gospel is truth. 
And then he says this, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And and the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Here's what Paul is saying. All right, the, the report we got and our understanding of who you are and your faith, that the gospel came not with just words, but with power and with deep conviction, and with the Holy Spirit. And this changed you so much so that you became imitators of God himself and that your testimony now is spreading everywhere, not just in your region, not just like in your country, but everywhere. Everywhere is talking and hearing about your faith and how you guys latched on so quickly and you grew so much. And I'm, I'm so encouraged with the report I got that you, that you kept the faith, you kept hope, and you kept love, and, and you, that this faith in God has become known everywhere. This isn't saying I simply choose to believe without evidence. And, and this, I hate this, by the way. I hate, if you've said this, forgive me. Please don't be offended. Well, don't be too offended, but here we go. When someone says you just have to have faith, what? You don't do that in any other part of your life. Just have to have faith. No evidence, no proof, no reason. Just jump in. You just have to have faith. No, you don't. You have to have good reason that the thing you're putting your faith in is actually real, is genuine, that this is trustworthy. And he says, we have this. We have, that it's not just blind faith that you just decide, but that the gospel comes with power and it changes you from your core that, no, 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 this is, this is, this is like, it comes with a deep conviction that nothing in this world can break not the severe suffering they're experiencing, not the circumstances. Whatever they're going through, he's like, you guys can withstand it because, not because you, you, you've chosen to believe a path that maybe is true or maybe is not, but no, no, it came with power and it has changed you in your core. That kind of faith, he says, all right, that kind of faith is contagious. That kind of faith is what people want and are drawn to. That kind of faith is what people notice in you and say, all right, there's something different. Something different about this person. There's something different about them. One of my goals when I, when I like meet with people just in general, but especially non-Christians, whether it be coworkers or neighbors, I hope none of my coworkers are non-Christians. <laughs> Do you guys know where Andy is? Is he? I'm trying to think. I don't know the last time I've seen him in church. No, I'm just kidding. I get so many people who, who talk about um, and maybe this has been your experience. They talk about how they meet Christians and they're just turned off. They're so judgmental. They're, they're, they preach forgiveness, but they're the most unforgiving. They're hypocritical. And I say, you know what? You're right. A lot of them are. I'm not even gonna try to defend that because I, I, know, I know some that are hypocritical and judgmental. And my response is always, you know what? My goal my goal, my interaction with this person, whoever it is, isn't that I defend all Christians everywhere. I don't even want to try. It's not even on my, it's not even on my, my, my to-do list of like, I'm not even going to give any effort to try and defend all Christians. What I want to do is say, all right, but let me give you at least an example of one who's not even great. I wouldn't even say I'm trying to be great. Just, hey, I'll be okay-ish. 
Let me present an okay-ish Christian to you. One that you could say, all right, well, they're at least not all bad. There's at least one that's, that's okay-ish. That's good enough that I'd be like, all right, you actually believe what you, like you live out how you believe. Yes, that's my goal. Not that I defend every, you know, every weird Christian that says some crazy thing, but instead to say, let me just try to be as real and genuine and, 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 and like convicted of my, of my faith as I can be and just share that with you. Let you see that. That's what they're doing. They're having this real experience and people are noticing. They notice. And if, if the gospel has changed you, people notice. Here's the third thing. You know you're a Christian. If you've turned from false saviors to the true one. You know you're a Christian if you believe in the gospel. You know you're a Christian if the gospel is, is currently changing your life. Not that it changed your life. You know, 30 years ago, I went through this change, and now I've done nothing since. No, no, no. That the gospel is actively, continually changing. That Jesus and, and like what he did on the cross and the authority that he has and that Holy Spirit is now a part of your life, and it's currently changing you actively. And then the third thing is, you know, you turn from, from, like, from the, all the false saviors of the world to this true one. Here's what he says. Verse eight, therefore, we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. All right, you have this, this perception and then it, it, this reputation precedes you and, and it's amazing. And then he says this, they tell, the, the report that we got, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. These are themes that he's going to talk about in the rest of the letter. He kind of intros them here. But he says this. The report we got is amazing. And it, we don't even need to talk about it. Well, here's what we know. Here's what we've been told. That you turned from the, uh, the old idols of your life to the living and true God. Now here's, this is, let me tell you something that's, that's true of everyone. And, and no one tells you this. Nobody tells you this. You don't grow up. No, your parents don't tell you this. Like certainly schools don't tell you this. The culture, your job never tells you this. But this is like nothing is more truer than what I'm about to tell you right now. You, and you're not going to like this. You're not going to want to hear it. You're going to probably squirm a little, but this is true. You are a slave to something. Every one of you, every person who's ever existed is a slave to something. Well, hold on, hold on. We live in America. This is freedom. I'm not a slave. I'm as free as I can be. No, no, no. You are a slave. You have a master. You might have a few masters. You might be enslaved to a few things. And here's the catch. You get to decide what you're enslaved to, sort of, indirectly at least. You don't decide the thing, but you decide how much authority and control this master has over you. Let me give you some examples, right? We can be enslaved to our Stuff, our possessions. You live a life, you can live your entire life from when you were born to when you get out of the house to when you have a family and maybe have grandkids and then at the, at the end of your life, your entire life can be centered around stuff. Just accumulating more stuff. That, ready? That has become a master over you. You are a slave to more and better and newer possessions. No one will tell you that. In fact, what they'll do is they'll actually breathe life into that and say, oh man, you love stuff? We have new stuff. In fact, we'll, 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 we'll show you commercials about this new stuff. You're gonna see a lot today. You're gonna watch them. 
and you're gonna laugh, and you're gonna think, oh, that's creative, and you'll go on the websites, and the whole goal is that you buy their stuff and get more things. It's subtle, but it is mastery over you. Maybe for some of us, you're like, I'm not a slave to possessions, because <clears throat> I don't have many, so I guess it's not a big thing. But, but here's another thing, ready? You can be enslaved to the approval of others in your life, that you, you live so that other people will either recognize you or give you any amount of subtle praise, any amount. Wow, you're so amazing at this thing. I wish I had your family. I wish I had your outlook. I wish I had your kids. I wish I had whatever it is. I wish I had responded to you. I, man, you're just, ah, oh, man. I wish I had your house. Uh, you know, you have such an amazing X, Y, Z life, whatever it is. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. That thing that sounds great, that compliment you get, here's what it does. Ready? It just adds fuel to the fire of needing more. More approval from more people. And worse, any disapproval, any criticism is like crushing to you. You, you live your life under the mastery of, 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 of pursuing the approval of others. And it has gripped you. Maybe it's this, you can be enslaved to success. Uh, for those of you who are in business or you're pursuing a career and always growing and always taking the next step and always taking the, you know, the next rung on the ladder or the next thing or the next investment or the next whatever it may be, the next, like building my business to the next level and, and invest the, the next amount on us. All right, the, and, and here's what happens. Your life is defined and, and here's, ready? I hope you're sitting down. You see your self-value and your worth as defined by your success. The more successful you are must mean the more valuable you are. And if you aren't successful, that means you aren't very valuable. So you become what we call workaholics. And you work the extra hours and you put in the extra time and you neglect the family. And I know, I know a lot of guys who pursue success and in the process lose their families. Because wife doesn't want that. Kids don't want more success. They just want dad. They just want you. And instead, you sacrifice your family on the altar of more success. More. Just more. Um, I, I watch, um, I'm sure you do too, Shark Tank. You guys watch Shark Tank? You ever? I, I admit I bought a few things. They got me. They got me. <laughs> and one of the guys on there, uh, super humble guy, his name's Mr. Wonderful. This is what he calls himself, and it's like, okay, yeah, you, you're definitely. And, and I remember watching an interview with him, and this guy's got more money than he can spend, millions and millions and millions and, and investments and all kinds of stuff. And I remember seeing an interview, and they said, um, all right, so um, how, much, how much money do you have? He's like, I've got, you know, I've, I've got some money. And then they said, well, how much do you need? How much do you need? Right? How much is enough? How much money is enough. And this was the response. Just a little bit more. He said that. He has more money than you or than all of us could spend. And he says, I just need a little more. I need a little more. Because money has become the master and, and, and he serves that at any cost, whatever it is. We can be enslaved to our insecurities. If there's things that you're insecure about, guess what? Guess what? You will live your life based on and out of those insecurities and they will master you. We can be certainly a slave to our addictions and, 
any kind of addiction. I'm not just like substance, although that's an easy one to point out, but any kind of, ad- of addiction whatsoever, whether it be a, a particular relationship that you keep, an unhealthy relationship you keep coming back to, whether it be, um, whether it be uh, social media and the pursuit of always looking better, or maybe the pursuit of like the, the internet and sites you go on, or food, or, or actual like substance, the, our addictions become the things that control us. These, all of these, whatever it is, whichever of these, and there's countless others that, that have like mastery over that things that we live for, they control us. And we give immense amount of authority to them in our life. And they, they become the things that, that direct our daily decisions, that, 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 that give us, they're the things that, that we hope and plan our future around and for. And, and Paul mentions specifically these things for them. And here's the, here's the catch. Again, so no one tells you that you are a slave because that is a no-no. But you are a slave to something. Something is mastered over you. Everyone has something. And then what they don't tell you is, is whatever, that, like, whatever that is, whatever that thing is, it's all false promises of false hope. It can never be attained. The more possessions you get, the more you want. The more approval you get, the more you need to keep feeling good. And any disapproval feels terrible. So you'll do whatever it takes to make sure you always get more approval. The more success you achieve, hey, this is going so good. Let's double it. I want more. I want, let's, let's pursue more success. The more you live in your securities, the more insecure you become. The more you lean into addiction, the stronger power you give it. That no matter what it is, it can never be attained, and what happens is you give more authority and control to that. Here's what Paul says about this specifically. In Romans chapter 6, he talks about us being slaves, and you're a slave. Non-Christian Christian, you are a slave to something. Here's what he says. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. When you were slaves to all of this other stuff, you didn't need to be controlled by righteousness, by right living. You weren't even worried about it. You were just living your life. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? The things that you used to do that you're ashamed of now, now that you're a follower of Jesus, you are ashamed of all this stuff. And what benefit did you get from any of these things? Those things result, he says, in death. But now that you've been set free from sin, you aren't now set free from slavery because he says, and have now become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And then he gives the famous verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, here's what you do. You don't say like, I'm a slave, now I'm a free. He says, you are a slave to this stuff, the idols of the past, and now you've said, I've changed my allegiance, and now I'm a slave to God. Paul calls himself, the Greek word is doulos. It's one of my favorite words in Greek. It literally means a bond servant or bond slave. Like, I choose to willingly work in service to this one. That's what he calls himself. That you're not saying, I'm no longer, nothing has mastery over you. That you're saying, I choose a new master. These things that used to have control over me, I now turn, which is the biblical word, repent, which just literally means to do an about face. Like, I've now repented from these and turned to a new master. And this one leads to righteousness, and he says, and to eternal life. Ooh. If you're a Christian, if you want to be a Christian, it means turning from the false saviors to the true one. To leave the things that 
used to have mastery over you to now one that, that you say, I now serve you above all else. And, and to, to the exclusion of all this, like I work for you. And if you want me to, to end some of these or to no longer like, be influenced by this, all right, Lord, do a work in my heart. And it's not like these are gone and I'm perfect all of a sudden, but, but I realize now you have authority even over the, I no longer live for this stuff. Being a Christian means transferring allegiance from the things of this world to the one who created this world. That's it. How do you know you're a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? You've transferred allegiance from all this other stuff that controls you and said, no, 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 I don't serve any of that now. I've transferred my allegiance to the one who created the world, to my Savior. That person, the person who is that, who's living that kind of life, is not, is not the one who is going to walk around being hypocritical, judgmental, accusatory, holier than thou. I'm so much better than everyone. That person has a better understanding, a better perception of who they are as a sinner who is in need of a Savior. And I, it's, it's by grace alone. I've done none of this. I've done nothing to save myself. All I can do is tell others of the same good news that I've found that has come and chained and gripped me. You no longer live for yourself and the things that previously had mastery over you. Instead, now you place your faith and your trust, your life in the gospel, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the purpose and mission that he came to save you. Ooh. That kind of person is different. That kind of person who lives their life now as a servant of him is different. And that, that kind of person, that kind of Christian, ooh, that's attractive. That's appealing. That's someone that is different. That's not, that's not this political, judgmental kind of Christian who's, who's making claims about it. No, no, that kind of person is now living holy in service to God. Whatever it looks like, whatever it takes. If you do that, he says, you cross over from death to life. Thus, he begins his letter to the church in Thessalonica by talking about what it means to be a Christian and how they have done it. So for us, maybe that describes you. Great. Maybe it doesn't describe you. Also great, because now you know. All right. I need to take serious the power and the message of the gospel to change my life so that I too can transfer allegiance from the things of this world to the one who created this world. Will you stand with me? And then we'll pray and worship together here. So Jesus, we thank you that you are moving in our lives, that you, that you love us and that you have changed us and continue to change us and that, that the gospel is not, just, it's not just words on a page that we put our name to. We say, I agree with these statements. The gospel is so much more. The gospel is power and it, has a, has a, has a, it comes with authority to change our lives that, that when we and we decide to transfer allegiance from the things of this world to the one who created this world, that when we, when we turn from the false saviors to the true one, that, that you really do change us from the inside. And what it means to be a Christian is not, is not defined by how you act or how you vote or, or how, even how you treat people. That is defined by the transformation that you, have do, that you do inside of us. So help us, Lord, to live out 
our faith. Help us to live out this power, this conviction of the Holy Spirit that we have. And may we share the good news with as many people as we possibly can for as long as we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.